finish the message that we started this morning. Now, we only got to two points this morning. We've got five left. But we got the rest of the day, right? I promise I won't keep you too long. And I think this will work this afternoon. That will help you uh, look at something else. We're at uh, What is a Disciple Part 2. And uh, we've been considering the whole question of what a Christian disciple is. The designation Christian, of course, is perhaps one of the most misunderstood, uh, confused terms uh, we could have in our language, I think. Yet, when you go back to its first usage, uh, you find a band of believers saved out of the world, living in a church, uh, uh, living in a city uh, in Antioch, the city of Antioch. And the people around them were either outright pagans or they were deluded religionists. And this group of disciples stood out like a bright star against a patch of black sky. And Luke tells us, and the disciples were called Christians first in Antioch. And so uh, it's vital for us to see that he calls them disciples. Uh, that, uh, uh, that allows us to identify what kind of person he's talking about when he refers t- to a Christian. A disciple was not a casual, fair-weather follower of Jesus. He was not someone who just merely made a profession of Christ without giving evidence of genuine salvation, genuine conversion. It was someone whose whole being had been transformed by the power of the gospel. His whole life was centered in Jesus Christ and that relationship to Him. He followed Christ and His teaching. It was the kind of person in Antioch that was first called a Christian. Now, how far removed we are from those humble beginnings. And the idea of Christian is kind of casually used today across the world. Uh, It's used for various businesses even and products Uh, It refers to all sorts of religious groups that do not give any credence to the doctrines of the Christian faith. And so we must go back to the Word of God, and we must attempt to recover the biblical teaching on what it is to be a Christian, and what it means to be a Christian disciple. Even Christians can sometimes be confused on uh, so uh, precisely what a Christian really is. And they can become so numbed by the world and the shallowness of teaching that they fail to grasp the reality of who they are in Christ and how they're to live before Him. So we approach this whole idea of being Christians, Christ's followers, with a reverence and deepest seriousness. We've noted that Christians have the character of God revealed to them uh, in a strong, powerful, irresistible way. And as as such, they have come to see who is this great God of the Bible and how he has manifested uh, himself fully to us in Jesus Christ. We called that the manifestation in our first point this morning. And Christians have had this revelation of God that's humbled them, exposed their hearts, and while at the same time cast upon uh, them the mercy and grace of God in Christ. And we also have seen that Christians are those that God himself has laid special claim to. And uh, we talked about identification uh, this morning. What is a Christian disciple? Well, there's more to see. A Christian is unlike anyone else in the world. 
Jesus Christ explains this in John chapter 17 in his high priestly prayer to the Father. Again, I'm going to use a key word and a statement to explain what a Christian really is like. We've looked at manifestation. We've looked at identification. Thirdly is understanding. Understanding. Someone who has grasped with the mind. We're not working? Thank you. Oh, that's pretty. Maybe we should just forget this thing today. Lost my internet connection. Pause. Appreciate you uh, letting me... Someone who has grasped with the mind the truths of the gospel. Now, a Christian disciple is not someone who just happens to have a good feeling about the gospel. Uh, he says, well, you know, those Christians, they're having a lot of fun. They have potlucks over there and they have, you know, food to eat. Let's just jump on, okay? Let's just get in with them. No, that's not uh, what a Christian disciple is. Uh, he's one who's heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's affected his mind. And though he may not understand everything, he's grasped it enough to uh, repent of his sin, realizes he's a sinner and he needs to repent, and he trusts Jesus Christ by faith. Now notice the Lord prayed in verse 8, For I have given unto them the words which thou gavest me, and they received them, and have known surely that I came out from thee, and they have believed that thou didst send me. Now you notice here that there are several terms used that will verify that the mind must be used to understand some of these definite truths or propositions in order to have eternal life. Uh, states that the Father had given them words. That word, words, is very, very important. He says here, where John the Baptist had testified concerning Christ, remember, the Father loveth the Son and hath given all things into his hand. And part of that all things is the words that Jesus received from the Father, all that Jesus spoke he received from the Father. On another occasion, Jesus was addressing a group who professed to be disciples, and they would later abandon him. And he told them, It is the Spirit that quickeneth, the flesh profiteth nothing. The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. He's showing the distinction of the self-made uh, religion and the uh, difference between that and a spirit-endowed life. Uh, these faults... Followers were of the flesh. They had not received the words of Jesus Christ unto life. But for those who hear the words of Christ and believe, those words become life. Peter said on the same occasion, Thou hast the words of eternal life. By the way, words are important. Not just concepts. Your modern translations are based on thought translation. Not word by word translation, but thought translation. So words are important. Now, again, let me emphasize the idea of words here stated to be accepted, adopted, and done. These are truths that are, you can write down, you can read, you can state in plain language. There's no secret code to be understood in the Christian faith. There's no mystical condition in which you must enter into as a, like in a trance. Oh, I've got to get into this trance to understand this. No, that's not a part of the Christian faith. Uh, 
the gospel is stated very clearly as fact or truth, and it's clearly recorded in the Bible. You're not getting a word from God when you receive the gospel. You're getting the word of God. I hope you see the difference between a word from God and a word, the word of God. That has been handed down to us through the apostles and the prophets of old, recorded in the 66 books of the Bible, preserved for us today. And is that that, it's that word which explains the whole redemption, a redemptive plan of God for sinners. Now, a lot of people hear the words of the gospel. So why do not all people who hear them believe? Well, you'll notice here that Jesus said he gave the words to those his, the Father had given him, and they received them. You have to receive the words. But he doesn't stop there. Have known surely that I came out from thee. And he continues, and they believed that thou didst send me. It's a marvelous work here taking place in Jesus speaking the words of eternal life. First, Those whom the Father has given him will receive the words of the gospel. That is, they will take the words into their minds as truth. And while they hear those words, they receive them. They don't fancy it as just some speculation. They don't try the words like uh, uh, signs, you know, uh, bumper stickers, try Jesus. No, it's not something we try and then if it doesn't work, no, They receive them, and these words become life to them because the words have been delivered to their minds to set them free. Now he goes on to say, They also have known surely that that I come out from thee. To know surely, to have known surely, is to understand the gospel, and it becomes light to you. It's something that now claims you, uh, 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 and for which you exercise faith. You must exercise your mental faculties in order to be saved. And I want to underscore this because the gospel first affects your mind and then your heart. You may have heard the gospel thousands of times. And I know people that have gone to uh, meetings and they've heard the gospel and heard the gospel that they don't trust Christ. You can hear it and you can hear it, but unless you receive it, it's not going to do any good. Your mind and your thoughts may are filled with wonder at the truth that God has sent His Son to redeem you from that curse of sin and give you eternal life. It's an incredible thing that you've heard. Now, this message of life does a work in your mind. It's a living word. Hebrews 4 and verse 12 and 13. It's quick and powerful. It takes root in your mind and it begins to permeate your whole being. Paul expressed it well to the church of Thessalonica. For this cause also thank we God without ceasing. Because when ye received the word of God, which ye heard of us, ye received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth the word of God, which effectually worketh also in you that believe. Now, this gospel goes to work in your life. It accomplishes a saving, eternal, life-changing work in that you believe. So what is a Christian disciple? He's someone who's heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's grasped the message by faith. And to him, there's nothing more precious than the gospel of Christ. He loves the truth of what Christ has done for him. He never tires of hearing it. And it stirs his heart. It humbles him. He lifts his soul in worship. 
Now this is such an important area for us to see. One day, or our day, has a a tremendous amount of things going on, especially in the name of Christianity. Uh, People who are walking down an aisle, they're making decisions, but they never understand the gospel. They never grasp its essential truths with the mind. So they go through life with a false assurance of salvation. They say, oh, I walked an aisle one time. I must be saved. Or I prayed a prayer. I must be saved. That's not what saves you. How do you believe something that if you've not understood it? And please understand, I'm not suggesting that a person has to know every detail of the message of the gospel before he's saved. But I am stressing that he has to have at least a basic grasp of the essential elements. And I would summarize those essential elements this way. God is holy who has given us a divine standard of the law. Uh, Man has failed to keep the divine law because of his nature and choice as a sinner, so he is consequently under the judgment of God. God became a man as Jesus Christ so that he might meet the demands of the law on our behalf to become our righteousness, to bear the guilt and the penalty of our sin before God on the cross. And then uh, Jesus Christ died on our behalf. Bearing our sin and shame before God's justice and rising from the dead to show that he was justified us and has given us life. And then we must repent of our sins and turn to God in faith, trusting Jesus Christ and his saving work as our very own. Receiving Christ as our prophet, our priest, and our king. I think those are basic things that a person needs to understand if they're going to be saved. Now, have you grasped these truths of the gospel? Have you believed these truths to the saving of your soul? Well, let's go on. Understanding, then, fourthly, satisfaction. Someone who has found a deep satisfaction in Jesus Christ and his finished work. Now, I've heard some people make the statement, Oh, I tried Christianity and it just didn't work. And then they quickly push aside your exhortations from the Word of God. You know, I have no qualms at all in saying that those individuals who make such a statement have never been saved. They have never received, they've never understood, they never believed the gospel of Jesus Christ. For if they had, then they would, have, they would find Jesus Christ the most profound satisfaction and delight that is possible in our frail human lives. Now let me give you a real deep theological illustration of this. It has to do with golf. Now some of you are going to say, this is trivial. Pastor, you talk too much about golf. Do you know what? It really can be a very spiritual thing. See, you're laughing at me. But I've heard people say, I played golf once and I hated it. Ken, can you play golf once and have a love for it? Pretty tough, isn't it? It's even pretty tough to have a love for it sometimes if you've played it every day. But you know, it's, it's like people who say, you know, I tried to bake a cake once and I failed, so I'm never making a cake again. My wife said that. 
Her first cake for us when we were newly married was a, what do you call that? A, a Waldorf, you know, a red cake with white icing. And it looked beautiful. Cut that thing down and it just... Well, I'm so glad that she didn't say, I tried to make a cake, I quit. As you can see, she's been successful. You know, uh, someone could say, I tried to fix my car one time and I couldn't do it, so I quit trying to fix cars. Uh, Someone might say, I've tried, and you put in the blank, okay? I tried this and I failed, so I give up. Again, being a Christian isn't something you try once or twice, and if it doesn't go well, you say, ah, forget it. Jesus prayed, now they have known that all things whatsoever thou hast given me are of thee. Jesus is referring to the disciples having come to a point of deepest satisfaction in Jesus Christ. They heard the teaching of Christ, but so did others. They saw the works of Christ, but so did others. Now they received and they believed Christ himself so that Jesus could describe their profound satisfaction. Now the word there, the phrase, the word in the original uh, Greek is for this phrase, they have known is actually just one word. It's expressing the fact that they came to a particular climactic point in their lives in which this revelation concerning Christ became a reality to them. It was at the point of the exercise of faith in response to grace given by God in Christ that they have known. The idea expressed in such a way that the knowledge at which they arrived would stay with them forever. It was a knowledge that changed them. But what kind of knowledge is he he talking about? Well, Jesus said they would have to come to know that all things whatsoever thou hast given me are of thee. Everything that Jesus is, everything that Jesus does, everything that Jesus possesses comes from the Father. And this points to the being of Christ and the redemptive work of Christ. And the disciples had come to the point of seeing this so that they met with ultimate satisfaction in Christ, knowing Jesus Christ. Now, I would submit to you that a Christian disciple is someone whose mind and heart and soul has come to the knowledge of Jesus Christ so that nothing Nothing else can satisfy the depths of their desires like Jesus. I mean, have you found anything in this world that satisfies like Jesus? Let's explain it this way. Let's suppose a man is lost in the desert without water. He begins to wander and to stumble through the sand trying to find his way out. And before long, he is really not so concerned about getting out of the desert as he is more concerned about finding water. That's all that's on his mind. Every step is in the search for water. Every gaze of his eyes searches for moisture that will invigorate his life. Now, someone could come along and stop him and ask him, would he be interested in, a, in lots of money? No, I'm not interested in money. He would say no. Someone else could come to him and say, I'll give you fame and reputation. No, I'm not interested. Someone would entice him with pleasure, but he wants none of it. 
The only thing he wants is water. Nothing else can satisfy him. Nothing else has his affections. And a Christian disciple is like this man. The only thing, the only person that can satisfy the craving of his soul is Jesus Christ. All the other things, they're interesting, they're alluring, they're, uh, they, they have their appeal, but they're temporary. No satisfaction in them. There's no delight in them. And so our longing as a Christian disciple is the heart cry for Jesus Christ. You see, you would ask Paul, what satisfies him? And he would reply, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings and being made conformable unto his death. Uh, How about John? Let's ask him, what satisfies you, John? That which we have seen and heard declare we unto you that ye also may have fellowship with us. And truly, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. Does Peter have anything to add about his satisfaction in life? According as His divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness through the knowledge of Him that hath called us to glory and virtue, he says. Now, would these men have traded the knowledge of Jesus Christ for all the treasures in the world? Not on your life. They found their satisfaction in Jesus Christ and the great sufficiency of His work. And I wonder, can you say the same this afternoon? Your greatest satisfaction is found in the Lord Jesus Christ. Or are there other things that have your heart and your affections? What is a Christian disciple? A Christian disciple, someone who has found the deepest satisfaction in Jesus Christ and his finished work. Number five, trust. We're making good time, by the way. Trust. Someone has believed, who has believed with the heart, Jesus Christ and all his substitutionary work. Now, we use the terms faith and trust and believe. We use them over and over in our Christian vocabulary. But I'm afraid that sometimes we just kind of assume that we have believed in Christ to the saving of our souls. Listen, believing in Christ is not the same as just merely acknowledging Him or praying a prayer to Him. Many people pray prayers. But it's an abandonment of ourselves unto Jesus Christ. It's a relinquishing of all our self-trust for the righteousness and for His righteousness and casting ourselves upon the righteousness of Jesus Christ on our behalf. Jesus prayed, and they have believed that thou didst send me. Now, if the Father had not sent his Son, then he would have, uh, we would be left without any hope before a holy God. We would have to cling to the broken threads of our own self-righteousness and find that they're worth nothing before the judgment bar of the Almighty. If the Father had not sent the Son, then we would have no salvation. We would have to cling to the burnt animal sacrifice or trust the priest before the altar. But nothing but the righteousness of Jesus Christ could satisfy the demands of God for us. And the the disciples here believed the Father had sent the Son, and the Son accomplished the work of redemption. And through the Son alone, they would be justified before God. Have you believed that? 
Paul wrote, For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Have you renounced yourself? Have you relied upon Christ? Have you received him as your prophet, your priest and king? What is a Christian disciple? He's someone who's believed with the heart, Jesus Christ, and all his work to save sinners. Number six, obedience. Someone who has kept the saving word. Now, it is a popular notion that you can be a Christian without any concern for obedience. I believe our text would dispel that false idea. It says here, and they kept thy word. They have kept thy word. It's in verse 6. Jesus could claim this for his disciples. Uh, This is a much needed truth for us to see. Consider the sort of men Jesus was referring to when he offered these words. You know, these men were full of weaknesses. Some were struggling with doubts. Others had tempers. Others with pride. They were failures in the case of Peter, who denied the Lord and the rest of the disciples, abandoning him after or in his hour of crisis. And so we don't have a group of perfect people, do we? By the way, we don't have one here this afternoon either. We do not have a group of perfect people in their obedience, in their flawlessness, in their character. We have sinful men. Yet our Lord, who is merciful and faithful, said, and they have kept the word. They have kept thy word. And so what does he mean by this? Obviously, it does not mean perfect obedience. Uh, John tells us, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. 1 John 1.8 Now, God's intention for us is not to sin. Again, John said, my little children, these things write I unto you that ye sin not. But our God knows that we're weak. He knows that we're frail. And so John adds, and if any man sin... We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. As long as we are in these bodies of clay, we are going to sin. But we, have, we are to be characterized as those who have kept the word of the Lord. Now when Jesus referred to uh, here obedience, he, uh, he gives to us an attitude of our hearts, the one, an attitude of obedience. The aim of our life is to obey the word of God. The practice or the habit habit of our lives is to be obedience. Yes, we do fail. We sin against the Lord. And I might add, with sorrow and regret, we do it. The whole direction of our life is moving toward obeying Jesus Christ and all that he demands upon us. That is a Christian. That is a Christian disciple. He is not saved because he obeys. He obeys because he's saved. Now, you cannot uh, think of this word kept without acknowledging its obedience. This uh, uh, is what James' whole argument about faith in the second chapter of James, uh, uh, and faith cannot be evidenced without works, or shall we say obedience. True faith will result in a change in a person's disposition and actions. And a man who can claim to be a Christian and yet live habitually in sin without regret 
or a sense of desiring repentance, that is not a Christian man. He's masquerading as a Christian. Now, will we sin as Christians? Yes, we indeed do. But we're never going to be satisfied in that sin. It does not bring us delight. It does not bring us pleasure as a Christian. It grieves us. It breaks our heart that we dare trespass the commands of our Redeemer. So what is a Christian disciple? He is one, someone who has been so changed in nature and heart that his desires now are to walk in obedience to the Lord, to keep the word of Christ. A Christian is not saved because he obeys. He obeys because he's saved. Notice number seven, distinction. Someone for whom the world no longer has claim. Now, several times here in John chapter 17, Jesus refers to believers as coming out of the world. In verse 6, he prays, I manifested thy name unto men which thou gavest me out of the world. The emphasis is that there was a point in time where every believer was still in his sin and still hopelessly trapped in the world. And remember that the world refers to the whole system of thinking, the philosophy of life that is contrary to God and His will. It is not neutral toward God. You can't be neutral when it comes to God. You're either for Him or you're against Him. You're either uh, uh, in... You're going to be uh, in His will or you're going to be antagonistic to His will. And that is the reality of our sinful natures. Our sinful natures are at enmity with God and literally rebelling against Him. And some are more or less outwardly demonstrative in their rebellion. But every person is born into this world lives under a warped attitude of hostility toward God. But God, through Christ, snatches us out from out of the world and we're rescued from the system of enmity with God so that Jesus could later pray, they are not of the world even as I am not of the world. Verse 16. The world can no longer claim ownership to us. We belong to Jesus. We do not belong to the world. We're no longer under his, its sway. We are citizens of another world. <clears throat> Philippians 3.20 For our conversation, that is our citizenship, is in heaven. From whence also we look for the Savior, Jesus Christ. What is a Christian disciple? He's someone for whom the world no longer has claim. He's been claimed by King Jesus. He lives as a citizen of another kingdom. He is distinct from the world about him. The world denies God. The world profanes his name. The world rebels against his authority. But not the Christian disciple. Now, in light of these words of Jesus Christ, can you honestly say you are a Christian disciple, a Christ follower who has truly been saved and learning and growing in the Lord? There's no more important question to any of us this day. Eternity stands before us, 
And a glorious hope in Christ awaits all who truly repent and believe in Him. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you so much for John 17. Thank you, Lord, that you allow us this opportunity to open the Word of God and very carefully go through these verses of Scripture, not hastily, but Lord, we want to glean the truths that are here, and I trust they will be truths that make a difference in our lives. I hope we really understand, Lord, what it is to be a Christian disciple. Not just a Christian. Many people call themselves Christians. Not just a disciple. Many people are following all kinds of things in this world. But a Christian disciple. One who's a Christ follower. Thank you, Lord, for leading us. Help us, Lord, we pray, to follow you. Help us to be faithful. Thank you for your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.